Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, continuing through verse 5, the beginning of verse 5 in chapter 4. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, O Jonah, do you do well to be angry in this way? Jonah went out of the city and he sat down on the east of the city and he made a temporary shelter, a booth for himself there. How merciful is our great God? That's a question that needs to be answered. In fact, it demands an answer. How merciful is our God? Because if our God is short in mercy, He is not worthy to be praised. Psalm 115.2 says, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And I want you to know that Yahweh is powerful. He is all sovereign over the universe, over heaven and the earth. He does do whatever He pleases. Nothing can stay His hand. No human, no creation, no angel, no Satan, nothing can stay His hand. He is all-powerful. And yet, if He is short in mercy, why would we praise Him? Oh, we would give His due respect. But His power does not bring praise. His mercy brings praise. The fact that His people know they deserve death and they don't get it, brings praise. He would receive honor as the sovereign God. He receives praise and worship because He is merciful. This text before us proves that fact. It is the fact that when we think of God, we are forced to think of Him as holy, self-dependent, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, omnitemporal, unchanging in His essence, His attributes, His consciousness, and His will, unassailable and sovereign. He is righteous, love, grace, mercy, kindness, faithfulness, just, and wrath. Our God Yahweh is perfectly simple and He never conflicts Himself in any of these attributes. They are perfect in all of their ways. Listen to the words of the psalmist when he says, The Lord 
is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's found in Psalm 103 verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, the Lord said this in Exodus 34, 6. He could have said anything, mind you, about himself. Look how he characterizes himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God could have defined himself any way he chose. And when he came to his servant Moses, he didn't simply thunder down from Sinai. He had done that. He didn't simply say, I'm sovereign, so give me honor. He didn't do that. God deserves and beckons and pleads with us as His children to praise Him. Because of His mercy. Because of His love. Because of His patience. Because of His willingness to not destroy those who deserve destruction. Possibly it bothers you to hear this. It bothered Jonah. It bothered Jonah in his day. And it might bother you because we are very deistic in our thought of God. We like to think of Him as powerful. We like to think of Him as sovereign. We enjoy thinking of Him as the one sitting on the throne, the earth as His footstool, His robe filling the earth. That is absolutely true. And we love to think of that because we like to keep Him separated from us. What we don't like is when He invades our world and He says, I am that God. But let me tell you, my name is Grace and Mercy, loving kindness, abounding to generation after generation, steadfastness, faithfulness, and relenting of disaster. We don't like that so much. We like it when it pertains to us, but we don't like to think of God in these familial, loving, kind ways. We're very afraid. I'm going to make the proposition Jonah was afraid Also, that it makes God look weak. That it makes Him look like He is in need of something. That He's incomplete as a sovereign. And I would make the statement, it makes Him complete. It makes Him perfect. It makes Him God. Because He is all-powerful and all-sovereign and has no need of anything and yet stoops down in the flesh and displays love and mercy and grace. Not because He has to, but because He wants to. And it is right for us to say that He desires our praise. He longs for our praise. He listens for our praise. It comes before Him, the psalmist says, as a sweet-smelling aroma. This is the backdrop of Jonah's mind. He's looking in verses, uh, verse 3 of chapter 1 when he went to Tarshish. He's looking at God and he's saying, God is a God of mercy. And Jonah was convinced that if the people of Nineveh repented and called out to Yahweh for mercy, then God would have mercy on them and not destroy their great city. God is by His very nature a God of mercy. And today on Easter, we will see that His mercy endured from generation to generation toward all of those who believe in His name. Let's look together at this. I want to show you three things from this passage. First of all, God displays 
His mercy in not destroying the people of Nineveh. Secondly, the anger of Jonah because of the mercy of God. Finally, from the text we see a contrast between Jonah the prophet and Jesus the Savior. I want to show you these things. Let's look together. God's mercy is displayed toward the city of Nineveh because they repented of their evil way. That is in verse 10 of chapter 3. And by the way, I know it might bother you that we're not in a gospel and we're not talking about the resurrection as you commonly might expect on Easter. I tell you, that's a plague of our minds, not God's. God would say, pick up a text and preach it. It has my son in it. And it has my Easter message in it. And it has my gospel in it. Every word and every page drips. Drips the gospel. Saturated with the gospel. So if it bothers you, just know you're Western. It wouldn't have bothered bothered Jonah in his day. It shouldn't bother us in our day. Jonah in chapter 3 comes face to face with the mercy of God. And it's in verse 10 is where the text gives it to us. The verse says, uh, well, let's first, let's take an overview real quick of this chapter. In verse 5, if you go back, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. This is the all-important step which allows the mercy of God to flow to them. The narrative has saved this for us, that they would believe God. That's a shocking response to the Israelites. That a pagan nation would believe in Yahweh. This is amazing to them. And it's amazing to Jonah. This is a response that is only brought by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit of God. Paul said in Romans 3, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. And I would say that is true of Nineveh. They would not have sought God lest His Spirit went to them and drew them to Him in repentance. It wouldn't have happened. Now, some commentators, you might pick up a commentary on Jonah because you've been inspired uh, by the preaching here. Maybe not, but maybe you just need some clarity because I'm confusing. I don't know. But you might pick it up and then that commentator might say, well, I don't believe that these people were actually saved. I want to show you, I believe they were saved. These words are not spoken about people who were not saved. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 5 where it says they repented. Or they believed God. And then look at verse 10, the opening clause. What does it say? When God saw what they did, what did He see? What did they do? Not the sackcloth and ashes. He saw their heart. God looks on the heart of man, not the outward appearance. He knew this was genuine. They were contrite. They were broken. They were crying out, we have no hope unless He has mercy. He saw it what they did, and He turned from His disaster because they turned from their evil way. What is repentance if it is not turning from evil? That's the definition of repentance. And so I would say to those commentators, though I respect them, I I, I respectfully disagree because continue to look at the passage. 5b, verse 5 says, They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. This was a fruit of repentance. It was humility. It was brokenness. They took off their good clothes and put on sackcloth, and they sat down in ashes. This was a way of the people in their day saying, we are repenting, we are evil, we deserve death. 
Please give us mercy. They were begging God from the depths of their heart to have mercy. The outward changes and the contrite actions of the people only served to justify the people before other people and before Jonah. It was their heart that made them just. It was the change in their heart, the new heart given to them by the Spirit of God through the blood of Christ that allows them to be just in front of God. There was a true change, an inward response that brought these outward changes. Make no mistake, their faith in God alone is what brought them to salvation, not the works of putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes. But as James says to us, the brother of Jesus, you tell me you have faith and I'll show you my faith. This is their way of showing faith. Have no choice but to do this. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, so it spread to them. Jonah went to the people and the people began to repent and it spread to the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne. That is unheard of in the eastern world, that a king would move. When a king had an audience, he sat and the audience came to him if he beckoned. And here the word of the Lord comes to him and he stands up in humility. He rises from his throne and the Bible says he takes off his robes and he puts on sackcloth and sits in ashes. No king, I would make the statement, would do this unless he had true repentance in his heart. And then he not only did that, but if you continue to look, he told the people to do it. He told the people later in the text, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, sit in ashes, don't feed yourselves, don't drink water, and don't give water or food to your livestock. That was their economy. He said, shut the world down that you live in. No commerce, no trade, no economy, no hope in this world, no city that would save us. The only one who can save us is Yahweh. That's it. It wasn't that he thought the animals were guilty of sin. The animals, unfortunately, are guilty only by association with guilty humans. The whole world is condemned because of our sin, not because of its sin. But yet, this is a way of saying even the economy, even the riches of this nation will shut down at the Word of God. We will stop serving ourselves. We will stop making for ourselves a great name. And we will sit down at His feet and beg for mercy. This is the backdrop for verse 10. So we get to verse 10. It says, when God saw what they did. What did they do? They repented and it was a true repentance. And how do we know it was a true repentance? Luke chapter 11. Jesus speaking of the people in Jonah's day in 29 through 32. He says this, when the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is an evil generation It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up. Notice he comes back to the men of Nineveh. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they, what? Repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
the contrast of Christ between Jonah and himself, the preaching of Jonah and the preaching of Jesus, the sign of Jonah and the sign of the resurrection, is wash if these people aren't real believers. Why? Because they can't rise up in judgment and say to that generation, we believed when you did not. If Christ had come to our streets, trust me, we would have believed. And how do we know? Because we believed when a man came with well puke on him and screamed out in our streets, yet 40 days and he will destroy this place. That's why this generation will rise up. Matthew teaches the same thing. He says the same thing in 12 verses 8 through 42. It's clear that the people truly repented and believed in Jesus Christ unto salvation. God saw the true repentance of the people and gave them mercy. He gave them salvation. And it's no difference than what He does to all of those who repent today. It's no different. Secondly, in the, te- in the text, look at the words of the text. It says, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. The way the prophet words this part of the verse might cause some of you to question the sovereignty of God. See, your God doesn't know everything because He saw something He didn't expect and He changed His mind. So it's upon me to prove that not true, right? It's simple. It really is. Let's look at what God did. He relented. The word in the Hebrew, nakam. Nakam, it's a guttural sound. It means to breathe strongly. The word picture given to us is of a horse breathing through his nostrils. Not that God did this, but that's the word picture of the Hebrew word. To breathe strongly. This passage is saying nothing but that God is pleased with their repentance. God is satisfied that they have repented. God is saying by His own emotion, if there was any question, there remains no question in anyone's mind that I have planned to save these people. Their repentance shows it. And it's relief. It is thankfulness. It is all in one being expressed. My will is done in this. God relented. He nakamed. He breathed Strongly, God promised destruction and that promise was conditional based on the possibility of repentance. This is not uncommon in the Old Testament. God tells the people of Israel, repent or I will send you off into, into captivity, right? He says it over and over again. And when they repent, He doesn't do it. And when they refuse to repent, He sends them away. So God's not a liar. He's telling the truth. When He said to, to the first, the first uh, time in Genesis... We see this idea is when he tells Cain, sin is at the door. Believe and he's basically saying repent because its desire is over you. It wants to rule you. Repent. It's the same kind of conditional statement. Repent and sin will not have rule over you. Don't repent, sin will rule over you. What did Cain do? He rejected the word of God. Sin ruled over him. God crushed him. God sent him out. He did not accept him. So we have the idea of a conditional here. God gives us sight so that we can see our lost condition. God gives us a heart of flesh that is filled with repentance. And God gives us faith so that we may believe on the Lord and be saved. 
The condition then is met, which God has asked for, and His gracious work of salvation occurs. But as Augustine said, what He requireth, He giveth. It's not that He's saying, maybe you'll repent and then I'll forgive you. He's saying, no, repent or I will crush you. And then to those who repent, He does the work of repentance. He goes into their heart. He brings them to Himself. He puts the words in their mouth, the heart of flesh in their body, and they do repent and He relents. And to those who He says the same words, repent or I will destroy you, He doesn't do that work of repentance and then He destroys them. And what is the example? Jot down Nahum. That's a prophet also. A hundred years after Jonah, the same message goes to Nineveh and they don't repent and God utterly destroyed them to the point we couldn't even find the city until just recent history. He totally destroyed it. He wiped it out. The Babylonians came in and totally crushed the Ninevites of the next generation because unlike their fathers, they would not repent. God's plan in eternity past never changes. This verse does not express a total change in plan. In fact, it only states that when God saw their repentance and He was relieved by it, he breathed hard in fulfilled expectation. That's what it says. God has mercy on the people of Nineveh because they repented of their evil way. And Jonah is angered by God's display of mercy. Jonah's anger is displayed in his prayer in 4, 1 through 4, when he asked God to kill him. The anger of Jonah is kindled in this passage. The verse really reads in the original, it was evil to Jonah and he had great evil against God is the implication. When it says, but it displeased Jonah, what he's really saying there in the Hebrew is, what God did was to Jonah, it was evil. God said, I've relented of destruction. And Jonah said, that's an evil thing. I hate that you've been merciful to these Ninevites. And I'm angry against you. I have evil in my heart against you. This is a play on words in the Hebrew word, ra'ah, evil, which can mean wickedness on the one hand or disaster, trouble, or misery on the other. And so he says, misery has been withheld and now I'm in misery because it was withheld. Great is my misery because that great city was spared. This is the heart of the prophet in this verse. Jonah was actually experiencing the emotion of anger, disappointment, confusion. Why? Because the Ninevites, who he hated, had seen the mercy of God. He didn't want them to be saved. He wanted them to be destroyed. Why was Jonah so angry at God? Many reasons given by many different people. Calvin wrote, John, Jonah's anger was because he was unwilling to appear as a vain and lying prophet. His own name had been... He said that God's going to destroy you in 40 days. And then God didn't do it. And he said, how dare God defile my name and not do what I thought He was going to do? I want to give you another reason. One that I didn't find in any book, but as I studied it, it became clear to me. Jonah, this is the reason I believe he was so angry. Jonah had forgotten that he was not deserving of the mercy of God. God had just given him great mercy by saving him with the fish. And in so short a period of time, he forgot 
that he didn't deserve it. He thought that the Ninevites were despicable people who were beneath the mercy of God. Jonah has a clear disregard for the gospel, for the gospel message. And he forgot, you have been blessed so that you might be a blessing. He forgot it completely. The anger of Jonah in verse 1. The prayer of Jonah in 2 through 3. O Lord, is not this what I said to you when I was yet in my country? That's why I fled to Tarshish. Basically, he's saying, I told you this would happen, God. Jonah hated the thought of the grace of God being extended to his enemies. And yet Jesus says to us in Luke 6, 32 through 36, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that for you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that for you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect full payment in return, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But, Jesus says, love your enemies and do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High. For this, He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Jesus says to you today, don't be Jonah. It's easy to love people who love you. What good is that? Everybody does it. Jesus says you want to know that you have the love of God in you and you are His child. You'll know it when you love those who hate you. And you do good to those who persecute you. And you give to people expecting nothing in return. As a matter of fact, when you give it to them, you know you won't get it back. And you're glad that they could have it. You'll give them not one tunic, but two. And say, don't even bring it back. Have it. This is how you know the love of God is in you. This is how you know you are a child of the Most High because He is a great God of mercy. God is a merciful God and He has called His children to be merciful and Jonah is not. He is not. In verse 2, he says, For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. There's so much here, but let me just say, gracious means He is a benevolent God toward the undeserving. In Exodus 34, 6-7, through 7, He gave this exact name to Moses. He's compassionate, which means that He is loving or merciful. It speaks of loving compassion expressed by a mother toward her own child. When He saw Nineveh, remember what He said? That great city unto me. When He looked at them, it was like He was looking at His child. He loved them with a merciful and compassionate love. Jesus, when He looked at Jerusalem, said, How I've longed to gather you under My wings, but you would not come. The expression of the Father. He loved that great city, Jerusalem, who would not repent. And so our God is a merciful God. If you're here today in unrepentance and sin, He is longing to say to you, Come under My wing. Have My mercy. And if you will not come, trust Me on this, the day of wrath is at the door and its desire is for you that it could rule over you. Repent and believe. God is long-suffering. He's slow to anger. The word literally means He's patient. Abounding in love. Hesed. 
This is the covenant love of God. When they say He's not saved these people of Nineveh, I wonder what they're even speaking about. This is the covenant love of God that Jonah says has been displayed to these Ninevites. The covenant love, which cannot be rejected or turned back. There's no English word to grab the meaning of this beautiful word. So we just say He abounded in love. A God who relents, Naham, that same word, from sending calamity. These are the words used to define our God. Compare Him to Jonah. He loved the people. Jonah hated the people. He was merciful. Jonah's not merciful. He's sinless and perfect. He has the right to condemn and he won't do it. And yet Jonah has no right and he desires to condemn. Jonah cries out to die and God responds to him in anger. This is not a mean-spirited question. This is a loving rhetorical response. He's calling on Jonah to repent again. Do you do well to be angry? Jonah, think about what you're saying, Jonah, is what God's saying. Think about it. I spared you and you won't spare them. Jonah, my son, do you not know my love? Do you not know my mercy? You're my child. Act like it. Do you do well to be angry? It shows the love and the compassion of our God towards an angry child. And yet He still loved Jonah. He still loved him. Now I want to end this Easter message this way. I want to contrast the anger of Jonah with the love of Christ. In verse 5, we find a pouting prophet. (laughs) Jonah left the city. When God asked the question, Jonah left. He set up a temporary booth like the people of Israel had become accustomed to doing in the Feast of the Tabernacles. He set up a temporary booth. He sat down under this slight shade. He faced towards Nineveh, waiting, pouting, begging, God, destroy them like you did Sodom. That's what his heart wants. He's a pouting prophet. He's a hateful, bitter, unmerciful man. This is the ultimate disparaging of the great love and mercy of God. A man who had been pulled up out of the roots of the mountains, the depth of the ocean and preserved and given salvation and now he cannot forgive his enemies. The word translated see for us in 4 verse 5 is the same word that God used in 3.10 when it says he saw what the Ninevites did. Listen to this. God, who is holy, perfect, and has the right to condemn the Ninevites, sees their repentance, and He Himself gives mercy to 600,000 people. Jonah saw what God saw. The same thing. And what was his response? The total opposite. A lack of mercy, hate, and despair. That's the portrait of Jonah given to us by His own hand, from the mouth of God. This is the pouting prophet. I said I was going to compare him to Christ. I'm going to keep my promise. I want you to look at the suffering Savior. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Listen to these words. The writer of Hebrews has said, He is our altar and He is our sacrifice. And this is how he ends that paragraph in 13. He says, or in the middle there, he says, So 
Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. This is the powerful picture of Easter. This is the atonement message. Jesus was led outside the city of Jerusalem and crucified on an altar known as a cross. He was placed on that altar by the plan of God the Father because He is God who is a God of grace and mercy. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Because of the nature of God, Christ had to die for the salvation of the elect. So He went outside the camp. He went outside the gate of the city and He died. He suffered. What did Jonah do? Remember, Jonah hadn't done anything but sin in this entire book. Jesus is perfect. He is God in the flesh. And His response is, I want to suffer for them that they might live. What's Jonah's response? I wish they'd die. And if they can't die, I want to die. And before we judge Jonah, take a look in your heart. This Easter, are you satisfied that those in your home, in your community, would die? Or would you be a child of the Most High God? And would you obey the words of the writer of Hebrews when he continued in verse 13 and said, So let us go outside the camp and suffer with Him and bear His reproach. Is that your prayer this Easter? That you would bear the sufferings of Christ so that that great city might regain the mercy of our great God? Or would you sit like Jonah on the east side of the city and face those wicked, deceitful, sinful Calhoun County people and say, I hope they die. They deserve it. Would you look to the east and look at our enemies politically, physically, spiritually? those who are under the deception of Satan and Islam and say, I hope they die and face a God who will give them what they deserve. Or would you look at them and say, Oh God, may I suffer so they might come to salvation. Will you go outside the camp and suffer with Him? Will you offer that sacrifice because He offered His sacrifice? You will only do it if you do what the... What the writer of Hebrews says, what I'm calling on you to commit to, Christian, in this Easter message is, go outside the camp with Christ. Set your eyes on the celestial city which is to come that you cannot see with your physical eyes nor hear with your, spiritual, with your physical ears, but you can see it. It is reality for you. You see that celestial city and I'm calling on you to stop looking at the city of man. Stop looking at the earthly city and looking at it with despair and with hatred. Start looking at it through the eyes of the One who created those people and His great God of grace and mercy. Look at it and suffer with Him for them that they might believe and be saved. Set your eyes. The the writer of Hebrews says, for He set His eyes on the celestial city. That was where He was headed. And He was determined to take Thousands with Him. And I'm begging you, this Easter, 
set your eyes on that city and refuse to hate those who hate you. Love them even to death and say, our God is a great God of mercy. Look at Him and you'll be saved. And if you're lost, you need to hear one message. He is coming. When He comes, He will shout with a loud voice and all those in the grave will be raised up at once, John 5 says. And then the judgment is given unto man once to live and then the judgment. That's it. If you're here lost today, be saved. How? By repentance and clinging, loving Him above all things. Let's pray. Father, gracious God, we're exhausted at this look into the pool of mercy. We have not even looked into the depths. We've simply scathed the surface of Your mercy. We've gone to one passage and we've looked in depth at the contrast between confessing God, between our hearts and Your heart. For we, when we have been forgiven a debt, will not forgive a debt. Let us remember God let us remember that what you said to the Pharisees was he who has been forgiven much will forgive much. And that's not a statement, Lord Jesus, I believe, about some people's wickedness and other people's goodness. That's a statement about everybody who has ever seen their true nature, which is totally fallen. And once seeing it, repenting. And once repenting, believing and holding and grasping to You, Jesus. And at that moment then, we are allowed to say, okay, I've been forgiven all of this and I won't forgive a little. Lord, forgive me and let me forgive others. I pray that's the prayer of the Christian here and that we would pick up our tents, get out of our worldly entanglements and set our eyes on the celestial city. And plead with those who will not believe. To believe, we trust You. We trust Your sovereign hand that even as this Word has been spoken, feebly as it was and insufficiently as it was, Your Spirit took it to the heart of those who are lost. And we pray, God, that it would be found in good soil and that it might spring forth and bring fruit. Oh God, let them not turn back from this repentance. Let them repent. Bring them to repentance. Bring them to salvation. And for the Christian, let us commit to follow You even to death. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. If you have questions, I'm available always.